This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. English Fairy Tales, collected by Joseph Jacobs. Chapter 18 The Story of the Three Bears. Once upon a time there were three bears who lived together in a house of their own in a wood. One of them was a little, small, wee bear, and one was a middle-sized bear, and the other was a great, huge bear. They had each a pot for their porridge, a little pot for the little, small, wee bear, and a middle-sized pot for the middle bear, and a great pot for the great, huge bear. And they had each a chair to sit in, a little chair for the little, small, wee bear, and a middle-sized chair for the middle bear, and a great chair for the great, huge bear. And they had each a bed to sleep in, a little bed for the little, small, wee bear, and a middle-sized bed for the middle bear, and a great bed for the great, huge bear. One day, after they had made the porridge for their breakfast and poured it into their porridge pots, they walked out into the wood while the porridge was cooling, that they might not burn their mouths by beginning too soon to eat it. And while they were walking, a little old woman came to the house. She could not have been a good, honest old woman, for first she looked in at the window, and then she peeped in at the keyhole, and seeing nobody in the house, she lifted the latch. The door was not fastened, because the bears were good bears, who did nobody any harm, and never suspected that anybody would harm them. So the little old woman opened the door and went in, and well pleased she was when she saw the porridge on the table. If she had been a good little old woman, she would have waited till the bears came home, and then, perhaps, they would have asked her to breakfast, for they were good bears, a little rough or so, as the manner of bears is, but for all that very good-natured and hospitable. But she was an impudent, bad old woman, and set about helping herself. So first she tasted the porridge of the great huge bear, and that was too hot for her, and she said a bad word about that. And then she tasted the porridge of the middle bear, and that was too cold for her, and she said a bad word about that too. And then she went to the porridge of the little small wee bear, and tasted that, and that was neither too hot nor too cold, but just right, and she liked it so well that she ate it all up. But the naughty old woman said a bad word about the little porridge pot, because it did not hold enough for her. Then the little old woman sat down in the chair of the great huge bear, and that was too hard for her. And then she sat down in the chair of the middle bear, and that was too soft for her. And then she sat down in the chair of the little small wee bear, and that was neither too hard nor too soft, but just right. So she seated herself in it, and there she sat till the bottom of the chair came out, and down she came plump upon the ground. And the naughty old woman said a wicked word about that too. Then the little old woman went upstairs into the bedchamber in which the three bears slept. At first she lay down upon the bed of the great huge bear, but that was too high at the head for her. And next she lay down upon the bed of the middle bear, and that was too high at the foot for her. And then she lay down upon the bed of the little, small wee bear, and that was neither too high at the head nor at the foot, but just right. So she covered herself up comfortably and lay there till she fell fast asleep. By this time the three bears thought their porridge would be cool enough, so they came home to breakfast. Now the little old woman had left the spoon of the great huge bear standing in his porridge. "'Somebody has been at my porridge,' said the great huge bear, in his great, rough, gruff voice. And when the middle bear looked at his, he saw that the spoon was standing in it too. They were wooden spoons. If they had been silver ones, the naughty old woman would have put them in her pocket. "'Somebody has been at my porridge,' said the middle bear in his middle voice. Then the little small wee bear looked at his, and there was the spoon in the porridge pot but the porridge was all gone. "'Somebody has been at my porridge and has eaten it all up,' said the little, small, wee bear in his little, small, wee voice. 
Upon this, the three bears, seeing that someone had entered their house and had eaten up the little small wee bear's breakfast, began to look about them. Now the little old woman had not put the hard cushion straight when she rose from the chair of the great huge bear. "'Somebody has been sitting in my chair,' said the great huge bear, in his great, rough, gruff voice. And the little old woman had squatted down the soft cushion of the middle bear. "'Somebody has been sitting in my chair,' said the middle bear, in his middle voice. And you know what the little old woman had done to the third chair. "'Somebody has been sitting in my chair and has set the bottom out of it,' said the little, small, wee bear, in his little, small, wee voice. Then the three bears thought it necessary that they should make father search. So they went upstairs into their bedchamber. Now the little old woman had pulled the pillow of the great huge bear out of its place. "'Somebody has been lying in my bed,' said the great huge bear, in his great, rough, gruff voice. And the little old woman had pulled the bolster of the middle bear out of its place. "'Somebody has been lying in my bed,' said the middle bear, in his middle voice. And when the little small wee bear came to look at his bed, there was the bolster in its place, and the pillow in its place upon the bolster, and upon the pillow was the little old woman's ugly, dirty head, which was not in its place, for she had no business there. "'Somebody has been lying in my bed, and here she is,' said the little small wee bear, in his little small wee voice. The little old woman had heard in her sleep the great, rough, gruff voice of the great huge bear, but she was so fast asleep that it was no more to her than the roaring of wind or the rumbling of thunder. And she had heard the middle voice of the middle bear, but it was only as if she had heard someone speaking in a dream. But when she heard the little, small, wee voice of the little, small, wee bear, it was so sharp and so shrill that it awakened her at once. Up she started, and when she saw the three bears on one side of the bed, she tumbled herself out at the other and ran to the window. Now the window was open because the bears, like good tidy bears as they were, always opened their bedchamber window when they got up in the morning. Out the little old woman jumped, and whether she broke her neck in the fall, or ran into the wood and was lost there, or found her way out of the wood and was taken up by the constable and sent to the house of correction for a vagrant as she was, I cannot tell. But the three bears never saw anything more of her. End of chapter 18 The Story of the Three Bears This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. English Fairy Tales Collected by Joseph Jacobs. Chapter 19 Jack the Giant Killer. When Good King Arthur reigned, there lived near the land's end of England, in the county of Cornwall, a farmer who had one only son called Jack. He was brisk and of a ready, lively wit, so that nobody or nothing could worst him. In those days the Mount of Cornwall was kept by a huge giant named Cormoran. He was eighteen feet in height, and about three yards round the waist, of a fierce and grim countenance, the terror of all the neighbouring towns and villages. He lived in a cave in the midst of the Mount, and whenever he wanted food he would wade over to the mainland, where he would furnish himself with whatever came in his way. Everybody at his approach ran out of their houses while he seized on their cattle, making nothing of carrying half a dozen oxen on his back at a time. And as for their sheep and hogs, he would tie them round his waist like a bunch of tallow dips. He had done this for many years, so that all Cornwall was in despair. One day Jack happened to be at the town hall when the magistrates were sitting in council about the giant. He asked, "'What reward will be given to the man who kills Cormoran?' "'The giant's treasure,' they said, "'will be the reward.' Quoth Jack, "'Then let me undertake it.' So he got a horn, shovel, and pickaxe, and went over to the mount in the beginning of a dark winter's evening when he fell to work, and before morning had dug a pit twenty-two feet deep and nearly as broad, 
covering it over with long sticks and straw. Then he strewed a little mould over it, so that it appeared like plain ground. Jack then placed himself on the opposite side of the pit, farthest from the giant's lodging, and just at the break of day, he put the horn to his mouth and blew, Tantavy, Tantavy! This noise roused the giant, who rushed from his cave, crying, You incorrigible villain! Are you come here to disturb my rest? You shall pay dearly for this. Satisfaction I will have, and this it shall be. I will take you whole and broil you for breakfast. He had no sooner uttered this than he tumbled into the pit and made the very foundations of the mount to shake. O oh, giant, quoth Jack, where are you now? Oh, faith, you are gotten now to Lob's Pound, where I will surely plague you for threatening words. What do you think now of broiling me for your breakfast? Will no other diet serve you but poor Jack? Then having tantalized the giant for a while, he gave him a most weighty knock with his pickaxe on the very crown of his head, and killed him on the spot. Jack then filled up the pit with earth and went to search the cave, which he found contained much treasure. When the magistrates heard of this, they made a declaration he should henceforth be termed Jack the Giant Killer, and presented him with a sword and a belt, on which were written these words embroidered in letters of gold. He is the right valiant Cornish man who slew the giant Cormoran. The news of Jack's victory soon spread over all the west of England, so that another giant, named Blunderbore, hearing of it, vowed to be revenged on Jack if ever he should light on him. This giant was the lord of an enchanted castle, situated in the midst of a loathsome wood. Now Jack, about four months afterwards, walking near this wood in his journey to Wales, being weary, seated himself near a pleasant fountain and fell fast asleep. While he was sleeping, the giant, coming there for water, discovered him, and knew him to be the far-famed Jack the Giant Killer, by the lines written on the belt. Without ado, he took Jack on his shoulders, and carried him towards his castle. Now as they passed through a thicket, the rustling of the boughs awakened Jack, who was strangely surprised to find himself in the clutches of the giant. His terror was only begun, for, on entering the castle, he saw the ground strewed with human bones, and the giant told him his own would ere long be among them. After this the giant locked poor Jack in an immense chamber, leaving him there while he went to fetch another giant, his brother, living in the same wood, who might share in the meal on Jack. After waiting some time, Jack, on going to the window, beheld afar off the two giants coming towards the castle. Now, quoth Jack to himself, my death or my deliverance is at hand. Now there were strong cords in a corner of the room in which Jack was, and two of these he took, and made a strong noose at the end. And while the giants were unlocking the iron gate of the castle, he threw the ropes over each of their heads. Then he drew the other ends across a beam, and pulled with all his might, so that he throttled them. Then, when he saw they were black in the face, he slid down the rope, and drawing his sword, slew them both. Then taking the giant's keys and unlocking the rooms, he found three fair ladies tied by the hair of their heads, almost starved to death. Sweet ladies, quoth Jack, I have destroyed this monster and his brutish brother, and obtained your liberties. This said, he presented them with the keys, and so proceeded on his journey to Wales. Jack made the best of his way by travelling as fast as he could, but lost his road and was benighted, and could find any habitation until, coming into a narrow valley, he found a large house, and in order to get shelter took courage to knock at the gate. But what was his surprise when there came forth a monstrous giant with two heads? Yet he did not appear so fiery as the others were, for he was a Welsh giant, and what he did was by private and secret malice under the false show of friendship. Jack, having told his condition to the giant, was shown into a bedroom where, in the dead of night, he heard his host in another apartment muttering these words. Though here you lodge with me this night, you shall not see the morning light. My club shall dash your brains outright. Sayst thou so, quoth Jack. That is like one of your Welsh tricks, yet I hope to be cunning enough for you. Then, getting out of bed, he laid a billet in the bed in his stead, and hid himself in a corner of the room. At the dead time of the night, in came the Welsh giant, 
who struck several heavy blows on the bed with his club, thinking he had broken every bone in Jack's skin. The next morning Jack, laughing in his sleeve, gave him hearty thanks for his night's lodging. "'How have you rested?' quoth the giant. "'Did you not feel anything in the night?' "'No,' quoth Jack, "'nothing but a rat which gave me two or three slaps with her tail.' With that, greatly wondering, the giant led Jack to breakfast, bringing him a bowl containing four gallons of hasty pudding. Being loath to let the giant think it too much for him, Jack put a large leather bag under his loose coat, in such a way that he could convey the pudding into it without its being perceived. Then, telling the giant he would show him a trick, taking a knife Jack ripped open the bag, and out came all the hasty pudding, whereupon saying, "'Odd splutters her nails! Her can do that trick herself!' The monster took the knife, and ripping open his belly, fell down dead. Now it happened in these days that King Arthur's only son asked his father to give him a large sum of money, in order that he might go and seek his fortune in the Principality of Wales, where lived a beautiful lady possessed with seven evil spirits. The king did his best to persuade his son from it, but in vain, so at last gave way and the prince set out with two horses, one loaded with money, the other for himself to ride upon. Now after several days' travel, he came to a market-town in Wales, where he beheld a vast crowd of people gathered together. The prince asked the reason of it, and was told that they had arrested a corpse for several large sums of money which the deceased owed when he died. The prince replied that it was a pity creditors should be so cruel, and said, "'Go bury the dead, and let his creditors come to my lodging, and there their debts shall be paid.' They came in such great numbers that before night he had only two pence left for himself. Now Jack the Giant Killer, coming that way, was so taken with the generosity of the prince that he desired to be his servant. This being agreed upon, the next morning they set forward on their journey together, when, as they were riding out of the town, an old woman called after the prince, saying, "'He has owed me two pence these seven years. Pray, pay me as well as the rest.' Putting his hand to his pocket, the prince gave the woman all he had left, so that after their day's food, which cost what small spell Jack had by him, they were without a penny between them. When the sun got low, the king's son said, Jack, since we have no money, where can we lodge this night? But Jack replied, Master, we'll do well enough, for I have an uncle lives within two miles of this place. He is a huge and monstrous giant with three heads. He'll fight five hundred men in armour, and make them to fly before him. Alas, quoth the prince, what shall we do there? He'll certainly chop us up at a mouthful. Nay, we are scarce enough to fill one of his hollow teeth. It is no matter for that, quoth Jack. I myself will go before and prepare the way for you. Therefore stop here and wait till I return. Jack then rode away at full speed, and coming to the gate of the castle, he knocked so loud that he made the neighbouring hills resound. The giant roared out at this like thunder. "'Who's there?' Jack answered, "'None but your poor cousin Jack.' Quoth he, "'What news with my poor cousin Jack?' He replied, "'Dear uncle, heavy news, good what?' "'Prithee,' quoth the giant, "'what heavy news can come to me? "'I am a giant with three heads, "'and besides thou knowest I can fight five hundred men in armour "'and make them fly like chaff before the wind.' "'Oh, but,' quoth Jack, "'here's the king's son a-coming with a thousand men in armour "'to kill you and destroy all that you have.' "'Oh, cousin Jack,' said the giant, "'this is heavy news indeed. "'I will immediately run and hide myself, "'and thou shalt lock, bolt, and bar me in, "'and keep the keys until the prince is gone.' "'Having secured the giant, Jack fetched his master, "'when they made themselves heartily merry "'whilst the poor giant lay trembling in a vault under the ground.' Early in the morning Jack furnished his master with a fresh supply of gold and silver, and then sent him three miles forward on his journey, at which time the prince was pretty well out of the smell of the giant. Jack then returned and let the giant out of the vault, who asked what he should give him for keeping the castle from destruction. "'Why,' quoth Jack, "'I want nothing but the old coat and cap, together with the old rusty sword and slippers which are at your bed's head.' Quoth the giant, you know not what you ask. They are the most precious things I have. 
The coat will keep you invisible. The cap will tell you all you want to know. The sword cuts asunder whatever you strike, and the shoes are of extraordinary swiftness. But you have been very serviceable to me. Therefore take them with all my heart. Jack thanked his uncle, and then went off with them. He soon overtook his master, and they quickly arrived at the house of the lady the prince sought, who, finding the prince to be a suitor, prepared a splendid banquet for him. After the repast was concluded, she told him she had a task for him. She wiped his mouth with a handkerchief, saying, "'You must show me that handkerchief to-morrow morning, or else you will lose your head.' With that she put it in her bosom. The prince went to bed in great sorrow, but Jack's cap of knowledge informed him how it was to be obtained. In the middle of the night she called upon her familiar spirit to carry her to Lucifer. But Jack put on his coat of darkness and his shoes of swiftness, and was there as soon as she was. When she entered the place of the old one, she gave the handkerchief to old Lucifer, who laid it upon a shelf, whence Jack took it and brought it to his master, who showed it to the lady next day, and so saved his life. On that day, she gave the prince a kiss and told him he must show her the lips tomorrow morning that she kissed last night, or lose his head. Ah, he replied, if you kiss none but mine, I will. That is neither here nor there, said she. If you do not, death's your portion. At midnight she went as before, and was angry with old Lucifer for letting the handkerchief go. But now, quoth she, I will be too hard for the king's son, for I will kiss thee, and he is to show me thy lips. Which she did, and Jack, when she was not standing by, cut off Lucifer's head, and brought it under his invisible coat to his master, who the next morning pulled it out by the horns before the lady. This broke the enchantment, and the evil spirit left her, and she appeared in all her beauty. They were married the next morning, and soon after went to the court of King Arthur, where Jack, for his many great exploits, was made one of the knights of the round table. Jack soon went searching for giants again, but he had not ridden far when he saw a cave, near the entrance of which he beheld a giant sitting upon a block of timber, with a knotted iron club by his side. His goggle eyes were like flames of fire, his countenance grim and ugly, and his cheeks like a couple of large flitches of bacon, while the bristles of his beard resembled rods of iron wire, and the locks that hung down upon his brawny shoulders were like curled snakes or hissing adders. Jack alighted from his horse, and, putting on the coat of darkness, went up close to the giant and said softly, "'Oh, are you there? It will not be long before I take you fast by the beard.' The giant all this while could not see him on account of his invisible coat, so that Jack, coming up close to the monster, struck a blow with his sword at his head. But missing his aim, he cut off the nose instead. At this the giant roared like claps of thunder and began to lay about him with his iron club like one stark mad. But Jack, running behind, drove his sword up to the hilt in the giant's back, so that he fell down dead. This done, Jack cut off the giant's head and sent it with his brothers also to King Arthur, by a wagoner he hired for that purpose. Jack now resolved to enter the giant's cave in search of his treasure, and passing along through a great many windings and turnings, he came at length to a large room paved with free stone, at the upper end of which was a boiling cauldron, and on the right hand a large table, at which the giant used to dine. Then he came to a window barred with iron, through which he looked and beheld a vast number of miserable captives, who, seeing him, cried out, "'Alas, young man, art thou come to be one amongst us in this miserable den?' "'Aye,' quoth Jack, "'but pray tell me what is the meaning of your captivity?' "'We are kept here,' said one, "'till such time as the giants have a wish to feast, "'and then the fattest among us is slaughtered, "'and many other times they have dined upon murdered men.' "'Say you so,' quoth Jack, "'and straightway unlocked the gate and let them free, "'who all rejoiced like condemned men at sight of a pardon.' Then searching the giant's coffers, he shared the gold and silver equally amongst them, and took them to a neighbouring castle, where they all feasted and made merry over their deliverance. But in the midst of all this mirth, a messenger brought news that one Thunderdale, a giant with two heads, having heard of the death of his kinsmen, had come from the northern dales to be revenged on Jack, 
and was within a mile of the castle, the country people flying before him like chaff. But Jack was not a bit daunted, and said, "'Let him come. I have a tool to pick his teeth. And you, ladies and gentlemen, walk out into the garden, and you shall witness this great Thunderdell's death and destruction.' The castle was situated in the midst of a small island, surrounded by a moat thirty feet deep and twenty feet wide, over which lay a drawbridge. So Jack employed men to cut through this bridge on both sides, nearly to the middle, and then— Dressing himself in his invisible coat, he marched against the giant with a sword of sharpness. Although the giant could not see Jack, he smelt his approach and cried out in these words, Fee-fi-fo-fum! I smell the blood of an Englishman! Be he alive or be he dead, I'll grind his bones to make me bread. Sayst thou so, said Jack, then thou art a monstrous miller indeed. The giant cried out again, Art thou that villain who killed my kinsman? Then I will tear thee with my teeth, suck thy blood, and grind thy bones to powder. You'll have to catch me first, quoth Jack, and throwing off his invisible coat so that the giant might see him, and putting on his shoes of swiftness, he ran from the giant, who followed like a walking castle, so that the very foundations of the earth seemed to shake at every step. Jack led him a long dance, in order that the gentlemen and ladies might see, and at last, to end the matter, ran lightly over the drawbridge, the giant in full speed, pursuing him with his club. Then, coming to the middle of the bridge, the giant's great weight broke it down, and he tumbled headlong into the water, where he rolled and wallowed like a whale. Jack, standing by the moat, laughed at him all the while, but though the giant foamed to hear him scoff, and plunged from place to place in the moat, yet he could not get out to be revenged. Jack at length got a cart-rope, and cast it over the two heads of the giant, and drew him ashore by a team of horses, and then cut off both his heads with his sword of sharpness, and sent them to King Arthur. After some time spent in mirth and pastime, Jack, taking leave of the knights and ladies, set out for new adventures. Through many woods he passed, and came at length to the foot of a high mountain. Here, late at night, he found a lonesome house, and knocked at the door, which was opened by an aged man, with a head as white as snow. "'Father,' said Jack, "'can you lodge a benighted traveller that has lost his way?' "'Yes,' said the old man. "'You are right welcome to my poor cottage.' Whereupon Jack entered, and down they sat together, and the old man began to speak as follows. "'Son, I see by your belt you are the great conqueror of giants, and behold, my son, on the top of this mountain is an enchanted castle. This is kept by a giant named Gilligantua, and he, by the help of an old conjurer, betrays many knights and ladies into his castle, where by magic art they are transformed into sundry shapes and forms. But above all I grieve for a duke's daughter, whom they fetched from her father's garden, carrying her through the air in a burning chariot drawn by fiery dragons, when they secured her within the castle, and transformed her into a white hind. And though many knights have tried to break the enchantment, and work her deliverance, yet no one could accomplish it, on account of two dreadful griffins which are placed at the castle gate, and which destroy every one who comes near. But you, my son, may pass by them undiscovered, where on the gates of the castle you will find engraven in large letters how the spell may be broken. Jack gave the old man his hand, and promised that in the morning he would venture his life to free the lady. In the morning Jack arose and put on his invisible coat and magic cap and shoes, and prepared himself for the fray. Now when he had reached the top of the mountain he soon discovered the two fiery griffins, but passed them without fear, because of his invisible coat. When he had got beyond them, he found upon the gates of the castle a golden trumpet hung by a silver chain, under which these lines were engraved. Whoever shall this trumpet blow shall soon the giant overthrow, and break the black enchantment straight, so all shall be in happy state. Jack had no sooner read this, but he blew the trumpet, at which the castle trembled to its vast foundations, and the giant and conjurer were in horrid confusion, biting their thumbs and tearing their hair knowing their wicked reign was at an end. Then the giant, stooping to take up his club, 
Jack at one blow cut off his head, whereupon the conjurer, mounting up into the air, was carried away in a whirlwind. Then the enchantment was broken, and all the lords and ladies who had so long been transformed into birds and beasts returned to their proper shapes, and the castle vanished away in a cloud of smoke. This being done, the head of Gilligantua was likewise, in the usual manner, conveyed to the court of King Arthur, where the very next day Jack followed with the knights and ladies who had been delivered. Whereupon, as a reward for his good services, the king prevailed upon the duke to bestow his daughter in marriage on honest Jack. So married they were, and the whole kingdom was filled with joy at the wedding. Furthermore, the king bestowed on Jack a noble castle with a very beautiful estate thereto belonging, where he and his lady lived in great joy and happiness all the rest of their days. End of chapter 19 Jack the Giant Killer This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. English Fairy Tales Collected by Joseph Jacobs. Chapter 20. Henny Penny. One day Henny Penny was picking up corn in the cornyard when, whack, something hit her upon the head. "'Goodness gracious me,' said Henny Penny. "'The skies are going to fall. "'I must go and tell the king.' "'So she went along, and she went along, and she went along, "'till she met Cocky Locky. "'Where are you going, Henny Penny?' says Cocky Locky. "'Oh, I'm going to tell the king the skies are falling,' says Henny Penny. "'May I come with you?' says Cocky Locky. "'Certainly,' says Henny Penny. "'So Henny Penny and Cocky Locky went to tell the king the sky was falling.' They went along, and they went along, and they went along, till they met Ducky Daddles. "'Where are you going to, Henny Penny and Cocky Locky?' says Ducky Daddles. "'Oh, we're going to tell the king the skies are falling,' said Henny Penny and Cocky Locky. "'May I come with you?' says Ducky Daddles. "'Certainly,' said Henny Penny and Cocky Locky. So Henny Penny, Cocky Locky, and Ducky Daddles went to tell the king the sky was a-falling." So they went along, and they went along, and they went along, till they met Goosey Pussy. "'Where are you going to, Henny Penny, Cocky Locky, and Ducky Daddles?' said Goosey Pussy. "'Oh, we're going to tell the king the skies are falling,' said Henny Penny, and Cocky Locky, and Ducky Daddles. "'May I come with you?' said Goosey Pussy. "'Certainly,' said Henny Penny, Cocky Locky, and Ducky Daddles. So Henny Penny, Cocky Locky, Ducky Daddles, and Goosey Pussy went to tell the king the sky was a-falling. So they went along, and they went along, and they went along, till they met Turkey Lurkey. "'Where are you going, Henny Penny, Cocky Locky, Ducky Daddles, and Goosey Poosey?' says Turkey Lurkey. "'Oh, we're going to tell the king the skies are falling said Henny Penny, Cocky Locky, Ducky Daddles, and Goosey Poosey. "'May I come with you, Henny Penny, Cocky Locky, Ducky Daddles, and Goosey Poosey?' said Turkey Lurkey. "'Why, certainly, Turkey Lurkey,' said Henny Penny, Cocky Locky, Ducky Daddles, and Goosey Poosey. So Henny Penny, Cocky Locky, Ducky Daddles, Goosey Poosey, and Turkey Lurkey all went to tell the king the sky was a-falling. So they went along, and they went along, and they went along, till they met Foxy Woxy. And Foxy Woxy said to Henny Penny, Cocky Locky, Ducky Daddles, Goosey Poosey, and Turkey Lurkey, "'Where are you going, Henny Penny, Cocky Locky, Ducky Daddles, Goosey Poosey, and Turkey Lurkey?' And Henny Penny, Cocky Locky, Ducky Daddles, Goosey Poosey, and Turkey Lurkey said to Foxy Woxy, "'We're going to tell the king the skies are falling.' "'Oh, but this is not the way to the king, Henny Penny, Cocky Locky, Ducky Daddles, Goosey Poosey, and Turkey Lurkey,' says Foxy Woxy. "'I know the proper way. Shall I show it you?' "'Why, certainly, Foxy Woxy.' said Henny Penny, Cocky Locky, Ducky Daddles, Goosey Poosey, and Turkey Lurkey. So Henny Penny, Cocky Locky, Ducky Daddles, Goosey Poosey, Turkey Lurkey, and Foxy Woxy all went to tell the king the sky was a-falling. So they went along, and they went along, and they went along, till they came to a narrow and dark hole. Now this was the door of Foxy Woxy's cave, but Foxy Woxy said to Henny Penny, Cocky Locky, Ducky Daddles, Goosey Poosey, and Turkey Lurkey, this is the short way to the king's palace. You'll soon get there if you follow me. 
I will go first, and you come after, Henny Penny, Cocky Locky, Ducky Daddles, Goosey Poosey, and Turkey Lurkey. Why, of course, certainly, without doubt. Why not? said Henny Penny, Cocky Locky, Ducky Daddles, Goosey Poosey, and Turkey Lurkey. So Foxy Woxy went into his cave, and he didn't go very far, but turned round to wait for Henny Penny, Cocky Locky, Ducky Daddles, Goosey Poosey, and Turkey Lurkey. So at last, at first, Turkey Lurkey went through the dark hole into the cave. He hadn't got far when, Crumph! Foxy Woxy snapped off Turkey Lurkey's head and threw his body over his left shoulder. Then Goosey Poosey went in, and, Crumph! Off went her head, and Goosey Poosey was thrown beside Turkey Lurkey. Then Ducky Daddles waddled down, and, Crumph! snapped Foxy Woxy, and Ducky Daddles' head was off and Ducky Daddles was thrown alongside Turkey Lurkey and Goosey Poosey. Then Cocky Locky strutted down into the cave, and he hadn't gone far when, Snap! Hrumph! went Foxy Woxy, and Cocky Locky was thrown alongside of Turkey Lurkey, Goosey Poosey and Ducky Daddles. But Foxy Woxy had made two bites at Cocky Locky, and when the first snap only hurt Cocky Locky but didn't kill him, he called out to Henny Penny. So she turned tail and ran back home. So she never told the king the sky was a falling. End of chapter twenty. Henny Penny. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. English Fairy Tales collected by Joseph Jacobs. Chapter twenty one. Child Roland. Child Roland and his brothers twain were playing at the ball, and there was their sister Bird Ellen in the midst among them all. Child Roland kicked it with his foot and caught it with his knee. At last, as he plunged among them all, o'er the church he made it flee. Bird Ellen round about the aisle to seek the ball is gone, but long they waited and longer still, and she came not back again. They sought her east, they sought her west, they sought her up and down. And woe were the hearts of those brethren, for she was not to be found. So at last her eldest brother went to the warlock Merlin and told him all the case, and asked him if he knew where Bird Ellen was. The fair Bird Ellen, said warlock Merlin, must have been carried off by the fairies, because she went round the church wider shins, the opposite way to the sun. She is now in the dark tower of the king of Elfland. It would take the boldest knight in Christendom to bring her back. If it is possible to bring her back, said her brother, I'll do it, or perish in the attempt. Possible it is, said the warlock Merlin, but woe to the man or mother's son that attempts it, if he is not well taught beforehand what he is to do. The eldest brother of Bird Ellen was not to be put off by any fear of danger from attempting to get her back. So he begged the warlock Merlin to tell him what he should do, and what he should not do, in going to seek his sister. And after he had been taught and had repeated his lesson, he set out for Elfland. But long they waited, and longer still, with doubt and muckle pain. But woe were the hearts of his brethren, for he came not back again. Then the second brother got tired and sick of waiting, and went to the warlock Merlin, and asked him the same as his brother. So he set out to find Bird Ellen. But long they waited, and longer still, with muckle doubt and pain, and woe were his mother's and brother's heart, for he came not back again. And when they had waited and waited a good long time, Child Roland, the youngest of Bird Ellen's brothers, wished to go, and went to his mother, the good queen, to ask her to let him go. But she would not at first, for he was the last of her children she now had, and if he was lost, all would be lost. But he begged and he begged, till at last the good queen let him go, and gave him his father's good brand that never struck in vain. And as she girt it round his waist, she said the spell that would give it victory. So Child Roland said good-bye to the good queen, his mother, and went to the cave of the warlock Merlin. Once more and but once more, he said to the warlock, tell how man or mother's son may rescue Bird Ellen and her brothers twain. "'Well, my son,' said the warlock Merlin, "'there are but two things, simple they may seem, but hard they are to do. 
one thing to do and one thing not to do. And the thing to do is this, after you have entered the land of fairy, whoever speaks to you till you meet the bird Ellen, you must out with your father's brand and off with their head. And what you've not to do is this, bite no bit and drink no drop, however hungry or thirsty you be. Drink a drop or bite a bit, while in Elfland you be, and never will you see Middle Earth again. So Child Roland said the two things over and over again, till he knew them by heart, and he thanked the warlock Merlin, and went on his way. And he went along and along and along, and still further along, till he came to the horsehood of the king of Elfland, feeding his horses. These he knew by their fiery eyes, and knew that he was at last in the land of fairy. Canst thou tell me, said Child Roland, to the horseherd, where the king of Elfland's dark tower is? I cannot tell thee, said the horseherd, but go on a little further, and thou wilt come to the cowherd, and he, maybe, can tell thee. Then without a word more, Child Roland drew the good brand that never struck in vain, and off went the horseherd's head, and Child Roland went on further, till he came to the cowherd, and asked him the same question. I can't tell thee, said he, but go on a little farther, and thou wilt come to the henwife, and she is sure to know. Then Child Roland, out with his good brand, that never struck in vain, and off went the cowherd's head, and he went on a little further, till he came to an old woman in a grey cloak, and he asked her if she knew where the dark tower of the king of Elfland was. Go on a little further, said the henwife, till you come to a round green hill, surrounded with terrace rings, from the bottom to the top. Go round it three times wider shins, and each time say, Open door, open door, and let me come in. And the third time the door will open, and you may go in. And Child Roland was just going on, when he remembered what he had to do. So he out with the good brand that never struck in vain, and off went the henwife's head. Then he went on and on and on, till he came to the round green hill with the terrace rings from top to bottom, and he went round it three times wider shins, saying each time, Open door, open door, and let me come in. And the third time the door did open, and he went in, and it closed with a click, and Child Roland was left in the dark. It was not exactly dark, but a kind of twilight or gloaming, there were neither windows nor candles, and he could not make out where the twilight came from, if not through the walls and roof. These were rough arches made of a transparent rock, encrusted with sheep silver and rock spar and other bright stones. But though it was rock, the air was quite warm, as it always is in Elfland. So he went through this passage till at last he came to two wide and high folding doors which stood ajar. And when he opened them, there he saw a most wonderful and glorious sight, a large and spacious hall, so large that it seemed to be as long and as broad as the green hill itself. The roof was supported by fine pillars, so large and lofty that the pillars of a cathedral were as nothing to them. They were all of gold and silver, with fretted work, and between them and around them, wreaths of flowers, composed of, what do you think? Why, of diamonds and emeralds, and all manner of precious stones. And the very keystones of the arches had for ornaments clusters of diamonds and rubies and pearls and other precious stones. And all these arches met in the middle of the roof, and just there, hung by a golden chain, an immense lamp made out of one big pearl hollowed out and quite transparent. And in the middle of this was a big, huge carbuncle, which kept spinning round and round, and this was what gave light by its rays to the whole hall, which seemed as if the setting sun was shining on it. The hall was furnished in a manner equally grand, and at one end of it was a glorious couch of velvet, silver and gold, and there sate Bird Ellen, combing her golden hair with a silver comb. And when she saw Child Roland, she stood up and said, God pity ye, poor luckless fool, what have ye here to do? Hear ye this, my youngest brother, why didn't ye bide at home? Had ye a hundred thousand lives, ye couldn't spare any a one. But sit ye down, but woe, oh woe, that ever ye were born, 
for come the king of Elfland in, your fortune is forlorn. Then they sate down together, and Child Roland told her all that he had done, and she told him how their two brothers had reached the dark tower, but had been enchanted by the king of Elfland, and lay there entombed as if dead. And then after they had talked a little longer, Child Roland began to feel hungry from his long travels, and told his sister Bird Ellen how hungry he was, and asked for some food, forgetting all about the warlock Merlin's warning. Bird Ellen looked at Child Roland sadly and shook her head, but she was under a spell and could not warn him. So she rose up and went out, and soon brought back a golden basin full of bread and milk. Child Roland was just going to raise it to his lips, when he looked at his sister and remembered why he had come all that way. So he dashed the bowl to the ground and said, Not a sup will I swallow, nor a bit will I bite, till Bird Ellen is set free. Just at that moment they heard the noise of someone approaching, and a loud voice was heard saying, Fee, fi, fo, fum, I smell the blood of a Christian man. Be he dead, be he living, with my brand I'll dash his brains from his brain pan. And then the folding doors of the hall were burst open, and the king of Elfland rushed in. Strike then, Bogle, if thou darest, shouted out Child Roland, and rushed to meet him with his good brand that never yet did fail. They fought and they fought and they fought, till Child Roland beat the king of Elfland down onto his knees, and caused him to yield and beg for mercy. I grant thee mercy, said Child Roland. Release my sister from thy spells, and raise my brothers to life, and let us all go free, and thou shalt be spared. I agree, said the elfin king, and rising up he went to a chest from which he took a phial filled with a blood-red liquor. With this he anointed the ears, eyelids, nostrils, lips, and fingertips of the two brothers, and they sprang at once into life, and declared that their souls had been away, but had now returned. The elfin king then said some words to Bird Ellen, and she was disenchanted, and they all four passed out of the hall through the long passage, and turned their back on the dark tower, never to return again. And they returned home, and the good queen their mother, and Bird Ellen never went round a church wider shins again. End of chapter 21 Child Roland This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan English Fairy Tales Collected by Joseph Jacobs Chapter 22 Molly Whuppie Once upon a time, there was a man and a wife had too many children, and they could not get meat for them. So they took the three youngest and left them in a wood. They travelled and travelled and could see never a house. It began to be dark and they were hungry. At last they saw a light and made for it. It turned out to be a house. They knocked at the door and a woman came to it who said, What do you want? They said, Please let us in and give us something to eat. The woman said, I can't do that, as my man is a giant, and he would kill you if he comes home. They begged hard. Let us stop for a little while, said they, and we will go away before he comes. So she took them in and set them down before the fire, and gave them milk and bread. But just as they had begun to eat, a great knock came to the door, and a dreadful voice said, Fee, fi, fo, fum, I smell the blood of some earthly one. Who have you there, wife? Eh, said the wife, it's three poor lassies, cold and hungry, and they will go away. You won't touch them, man. He said nothing, but ate up a big supper and ordered them to stay all night. Now he had three lassies of his own, and they were to sleep in the same bed with the three strangers. The youngest of the three strange lassies was called Molly Wuppie, and she was very clever. 
She noticed that before they went to bed, the giant put straw ropes round her neck and her sister's, and round his own lassie's necks he put gold chains. So Molly took care and did not fall asleep, but waited till she was sure every one was sleeping sound. Then she slipped out of the bed and took the straw ropes off her own and her sister's necks and took the gold chains off the giant's lassies. She then put the straw ropes on the giant's lassies and the gold on herself and her sister's and lay down. And in the middle of the night up rose the giant, armed with a great club, and he felt for the necks with the straw. It was dark. He took his own lassies out of bed, onto the floor, and battered them until they were dead, and then lay down again, thinking he had managed fine. Molly thought at times she and her sisters were out of that, so she wakened them and told them to be quiet, and they slipped out of the house. They all got out safe, and they ran and ran, and never stopped until morning, when they saw a grand house before them. It turned out to be a king's house, so Molly went in and told her story to the king. He said, Well, Molly, you are a clever girl, and you have managed well, but if you would manage better, and go back and steal the giant sword that hangs on the back of his bed, I would give your eldest sister my eldest son to marry. Molly said she would try. So she went back and managed to slip into the giant's house and crept in below the bed. The giant came home and ate up a great supper and went to bed. Molly waited until he was snoring and she crept out and she reached over the giant and got down the sword. But just as she got it out over the bed, it gave a rattle, and up jumped the giant, and Molly ran out at the door, and the sword with her. And she ran, and he ran, till they came to the bridge of one hair. And she got over, but he couldn't. And he says, Woe worth ye, Molly Wuppy, never ye come again. And she says, Twice yet, Carl, quoth she, I'll come to Spain. So Molly took the sword to the king, and her sister was married to his son. Well, the king, he says, you've managed well, Molly, but if you would manage better, and steal the purse that lies below the giant's pillow, I would marry your second sister to my second son. And Molly said she would try. So she set out for the giant's house, and slipped in, and hid again below the bed and waited till the giant had eaten his supper, and was snoring sound asleep. She slipped out, and slipped her hand below the pillow, and got out the purse. But just as she was going out, the giant wakened, and ran after her, and she ran, and he ran, till they came to the bridge of one hair, and she got over, but he couldn't. And he said, Woe worth ye, Molly Wuppy, never you come again. Once yet, Carl, quoth she, I'll come to Spain. So Molly took the purse to the king, and her second sister was married to the king's second son. After that, the king says to Molly, Molly, you are a clever girl, but if you would do better yet, and steal the giant's ring that he wears on his finger, I will give you my youngest son for yourself. Molly said she would try. So back she goes to the giant's house, and hides herself below the bed. The giant wasn't long ere he came home, and after he had eaten a great big supper, he went to his bed, and shortly was snoring loud. Molly crept out, and reached over the bed, and got hold of the giant's hand, and she pulled and she pulled, until she got off the ring. But just as she got it off, the giant got up, and gripped her by the hand, and he says, now I have catched you, Molly Wuppy, and if I had done as much ill to you as ye have done to me, what would ye do to me? Molly says, I would put you into a sack, and I'd put the cat inside with you, and the dog aside you, and a needle and thread, and a shears, and I'd hang you up upon the wall, and I'd go to the wood, and choose the thickest stick I could get, and I would come home, 
and take you down and bang you till you were dead. Well, Molly, says the giant, I'll just do that to you. So he gets a sack and puts Molly into it, and the cat and the dog beside her, and a needle and thread and shears, and hangs her upon the wall, and goes to the wood to choose a stick. Molly, she sings out, Oh, if you see what I see. Oh, says the giant's wife, what do ye see, Molly? But Molly never said a word, but, Oh, if ye see what I see. The giant's wife begged that Molly would take her up into the sack till she would see what Molly saw. So Molly took the shears and cut a hole in the sack and took out the needle and thread with her and jumped down and helped the giant's wife up into the sack and sewed up the hole. The giant's wife saw nothing and began to ask to get down again. But Molly never minded and hid herself at the back of the door. Home came the giant, and a great big tree in his hand, and he took down the sack and began to batter it. His wife cried, It's me, man! But the dog barked, and the cat mewed, and he did not know his wife's voice. But Molly came out from the back of the door, and the giant saw her, and he after her, and he ran, and she ran, till they came to the bridge of one hair, and she got over, but he couldn't, and he said, Woe worth you, Molly Whuppy, never you come again. Never more, Carl, quoth she, will I come again to Spain. So Molly took the ring to the king, and she was married to his youngest son, and she never saw the giant again. End of chapter 22, Molly Whuppy This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. English Fairy Tales Collected by Joseph Jacobs. Chapter 23 The Red Etten. There was once a widow that lived on a small bit of ground, which she rented from a farmer. And she had two sons, and by and by it was time for the wife to send them away to seek their fortune. So she told her eldest son one day to take a can and bring her water from the well, that she might bake a cake for him, and however much or however little he might bring, the cake would be great or small accordingly, and that cake was to be all that she could give him when he went on his travels. The lad went away with the can to the well, and filled it with water, and then came away home again. But the can being broken, the most part of the water had run out before he got back so his cake was very small. Yet small as it was, his mother asked him if he was willing to take the half of it with her blessing, telling him that if he chose rather to take the whole, he would only get it with her curse. The young man, thinking he might have to travel a far way, and not knowing when or how he might get other provisions, said he would like to have the whole cake, come of his mother's malice and what like. So she gave him the whole cake and her malice and along with it, then he took his brother aside, and gave him a knife to keep till he should come back, desiring him to look at it every morning, and as long as it continued to be clear, then he might be sure that the owner of it was well, but if it grew dim and rusty, then for certain some ill had befallen him. So the young man went to seek his fortune, and he went all that day, and all the next day, and on the third day in the afternoon, he came up to where a shepherd was sitting with a flock of sheep. And he went up to the shepherd and asked him who the sheep belonged to. And he answered, The Red Etten of Ireland once lived in Balligan, and stole King Markham's daughter, the King of Fair Scotland. He beats her, he binds her, he lays her on a band, and every day he strikes her with a bright silver wand. Like Julian the Roman, he's one that fears no man. It's said there's one predestinate to be his mortal foe, but that man is yet unborn, and long may it be so. This shepherd also told him to beware of the beasts he should next meet, for they were of a very different kind from any he had yet seen. So the young man went on, 
and by and by he saw a multitude of very dreadful beasts with two heads, and on every head four horns. And he was sore frightened, and ran away from them as fast as he could. And glad was he when he came to a castle that stood on a hillock, with the door standing wide open to the wall. And he went into the castle for shelter, and there he saw an old wife sitting beside the kitchen fire. He asked the wife if he might stay for the night, as he was tired with a long journey, and the wife said he might, but it was not a good place for him to be in, as it belonged to the Red Etten, who was a very terrible beast, with three heads that spared no living man it could get hold of. The young man would have gone away, but he was afraid of the beasts on the outside of the castle, so he beseeched the old woman to hide him as best she could, and not tell the Etten he was there. He thought, if he could put over the night, he might get away in the morning without meeting with the beasts, and so escape. But he had not been long in his hiding-hole, before the awful Etten came in, and no sooner was he in than he was heard crying, Snogbutt and Snogben, I find the smell of an earthly man, be he living or be he dead, his heart this night shall kitchen my bread. The monster soon found the poor young man, and pulled him from his hole, and when he had got him out, he told him that if he could answer him three questions, his life should be spared. So the first head asked, A thing without an end, what's that? But the young man knew not. Then the second head said, The smaller, the more dangerous, what's that? But the young man knew it not. And then the third head asked, the dead carrying the living, riddle me that. But the young man had to give it up. The lad not being able to answer one of these questions, the red Etten took a mallet and knocked him on the head, and turned him into a pillar of stone. On the morning after this happened, the younger brother took out the knife to look at it, and he was grieved to find it all brown with rust. He told his mother that the time was now come for him to go away upon his travels also, so she requested him to take the can to the well for water, that she might make a cake for him. And he went, and as he was bringing home the water, a raven over his head cried to him to look, and he would see that the water was running out. And he was a young man of sense, and seeing the water running out, he took some clay and patched up the holes, so that he brought home enough water to bake a large cake. When his mother put it to him to take the half-cake with her blessing, he took it in preference to having the whole with her malison, and yet the half was bigger than what the other lad had got. So he went away on his journey, and after he had travelled a far way, he met with an old woman that asked him if he would give her a bit of his johnny cake, and he said, I will gladly do that, and so he gave her a piece of the johnny cake, and for that she gave him a magical wand that she might yet be of service to him, if he took care to use it rightly. Then the old woman, who was a fairy, told him a great deal that would happen to him, and what he ought to do in all circumstances, and after that she vanished in an instant out of his sight. He went on a great way farther, and then he came up to the old man herding the sheep, and when he asked whose sheep these were, the answer was, The Red Etten of Ireland once lived in Balligan, and stole King Malcolm's daughter, the King of Fair Scotland. He beats her, he binds her, he lays her on a band, and every day he strikes her with a bright silver wand. Like Julian the Roman, he's one that fears no man. But now I fear his end is near, and destiny at hand, and you're to be, I plainly see, the heir of all his land. When he came to the place where the monstrous beasts were standing, he did not stop nor run away, but went boldly through amongst them. One came up roaring with open mouth to devour him, when he struck it with his wand, and laid it in an instant dead at his feet. He soon came to the Etten's castle where he knocked, and was admitted. The old woman who sat by the fire warned him of the terrible Etten, and what had been the fate of his brother. But he was not to be daunted. The monster soon came in, saying, Snogbutt and Snogben, I find the smell of an earthly man. Be he living or be he dead, his heart shall be kitchen to my bread. He quickly espied the young man, and bade him come forth on the floor. 
and then he put the three questions to him. But the young man had been told everything by the good fairy, so he was able to answer all the questions. So when the first head asked, "'What's the thing without an end?' he said, "'A bowl.' And when the second head said, "'The smaller the more dangerous. What's that?' he said at once, "'A bridge.' And last, the third head said, "'When does the dead carry the living? Riddle me that.' Then the young man answered up at once and said, When a ship sails on the sea with men inside her. When the Etin found this, he knew that his power was gone. The young man then took up an axe and hewed off the monster's three heads. He next asked the old woman to show him where the king's daughter lay, and the old woman took him upstairs and opened a great many doors, and out of every door came a beautiful lady who had been imprisoned there by the Etin and one of the ladies was the king's daughter. She also took him down into a low room, and there stood a stone pillar that he had only to touch with his wand when his brother started into life. And the whole of the prisoners were overjoyed at their deliverance, for which they thanked the young man. Next day they all set out for the king's court, and a gallant company they made, and the king married his daughter to the young man that had delivered her and gave a noble's daughter to his brother. And so they all lived happily all the rest of their days. End of chapter 23 The Red Etten